We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, filth, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. The red button means record. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so just red means you, record. In case you didn't uh, remember that, like okay. I didn't. The red button means record. Well, that, I can't. I can't see your board from here. You so. know. Well, you know. I would <laughs> so. just call the first fifteen minutes a dress rehearsal. Uh, oh, good. Good right. enough. So, welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host, along with Loretta Eaton, and we have a guest in the house, uh, Chad Broussard, and so we're glad to have Chad. Um, we, uh, we've decided to change things up a little bit this week because we're tired of swimming in the cesspool. Too depressing. Too depressing. You know, after watching the elections in uh, Anchorage mm. and seeing that nothing's really changed, nope. that stupid is still stupid. It, see? Right? Yep, yeah. stupid is still uh, you've stupid. You've won me over. I've won, won you over won for a over. segment of society. Stupid is stupid. I mean, we'll, we'll have to get t-shirts now that <laughs> yeah. say stupid and stupider. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's yeah. like dumb and dumber, <laughs> yeah. right? Or something like that. But uh, anyway, so we're switching things up and we've got some things that we can fall back to if chad decides he gets bored with this but uh but we wanted to uh invite chad to come and join us uh chad is a a, a recent implant to alaska transplant rather and um he comes to us from louisiana with a name like broussard it couldn't be like <laughs> ohio i guess no nope. so um so chad you're a falconer tell us a little bit about that when when how you learned about it um and uh, how long you've been doing it? So as a kid growing up, uh, I w- I'm a lifelong hunter, and I've always inspired to do things different, I guess. So when I learned of falconry, um, I decided that that would be something that I would partake in. And uh, so falconry is very difficult to get into because of the process to go- that you have to go through. You first have to contact a master falconer, which would take you in like a surrogate, I guess, in some manner of speaking. And uh, they have to dedicate two years of their life to you to kind of groom you and get you ready for, make sure you ready for birds of prey. So you're kind of like a falcon yourself. Nowadays, sort of, you know, yeah. they, they, they find you, they have to groom you, groom and prepare you. you. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. But hopefully yeah. your cage is a little bit bigger. Yes, my cage yeah. is a little bit bigger. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So um, I, now I know that uh, you know we we've had a chance to talk a couple of times, but uh, but my daughter really uh, got interested when she learned that you were a falconer because she's writing a fantasy novel, and um, thanks to you, she's completely rewriting it now. I think. Right <laughs> on. <laughs> she uh, she is very excited to sit down with you for about three hours yeah. and talk about the process of of what it takes to be a falconer, how you how you get your. Uh, your wings, so to speak. Right. Uh, it's kind of like becoming a pilot, I guess. It's exactly like becoming a pilot. Right? You know, so yeah. um, so you, how long have you been doing this? Uh, it's about 16 and a half yeah, years. 16 now, and a yeah. half years. And and how many birds have you had during that time? So I've flown four birds in that time. And uh, so there, there are differences. So there are wild 
captures and then uh, um, there are birds that are raised in captivity and in captivity you can have a bird for several years but wild caught birds traditional falconers would capture them during the so the parents have a fledgling time of the year where they kind of uh, kick the kids out of the home right so to speak and uh, so you catch them at that time and you hunt them for one year traditionally and then release them again at the same time of the year next, that following year. It's sort of what it, what it basically amounts to, guys, is that uh, falconers have a responsibility to make sure that birds of prey are protected until the time that they are breeding age. And so to put in perspective, red-tailed hawks in Louisiana, one of every 100 red-tailed hawks will survive to maturity to breed. 100% of red-tailed hawks in falconers' hands survive to Mm -hmm. breed. So that's kind of our trade with nature Mm -hmm. because these birds that we capture out of the wild don't belong to us. Mm -mm. They belong to the state. Like if I kept this bird, it just belongs to the state of Alaska and everyone in it. So so tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the government gets involved, obviously, at some level. Absolutely, yes. How... so the bird that you're hunting right now, the one that you're right. trying to get for your first falcon in Alaska, what what breed or species is that? That bird is going to be a goshawk, and it's the largest size of the cipeter group, which is only three. And uh, cipeters are known for their, uh, I guess, like their uh, independent state of mind, so to speak. You know, they're the mo- the least pliable of any bird of prey, but they have... The goshawk would be probably, comparatively speaking, would be the best, one of the best hunting hawks uh, of any falconer, uh, any falconry bird. So, in falconry, it's federally man, uh, regulated, obviously. So, there are a lot of responsibilities as a falconer. I mean, when you catch a bird, this bird is weighed on the spot, and this bird, the weight of that bird is taken twice a day, and that weight is reported to wildlife and fisheries once a month to make sure that when you capture this bird you're maintaining this bird its weight and and and, and all the things that go with it not so only what's that a, what's an acceptable loss of weight well th- it varies with different species so if it was something as small as a kestrel american kestrel you can go up and down five grams oh. any more than five grams <laughs> oh gosh well yeah so yeah. any more than five grams yeah. you're endangering the life of that bird yeah. feed them a lot of cheese yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of cheese. Something like a goshawk yeah. would be yeah. about 15 grams. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So were they surprised? Now, who did you have to approach here on the peninsula to tell them that you wanted, you're a falconer and you wanted to do this? Were they, is this something they're accustomed to? Yes, there are oh, great so there, falconers here in Oh, Alaska. there are? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Really? Yes, oh, that's interesting. There's actually a falconry association in uh, Anchorage, uh, which is spread out throughout Alaska. Some oh, of, some oh of, that's interesting. Yes, ma'am. Very under sort of... Under the radar there. Yeah. Well, you guys. Well, because it's such a hard thing to get into. So yeah. in falconry, the reason you go through the, the, the main reason for a two-year apprenticeship is to make sure that you have the ability and the means to care mm-hmm. for these birds because it's quite expensive. If this bird gets anything hurt in any kind of way, you are absolutely responsible for this bird. Uh-huh. And, you know, falconers want everybody to be responsible because we don't want the sport of falconry be frowned on so you know it's kind of weed out the people that oh that's interesting don't belong yeah so okay this is something you do on your own you take your falcon and 
go out in the woods and say go catch something or you do it as a group or well you can so you so there are different types of falconry so there is only one bird in falconry that will fly in a group so if us three had a harris hawk harris hawks are communal birds and they hunt together right Mm -hmm. in a group but if I had a goshawk, I would hunt only one goshawk, but you can bring a group of people out there with to you. To watch. Yes, to watch it and oh, enjoy okay. it. okay. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So so what kind of critters is a, is a goshawk hunting? Um, mostly hare, grouse, ptarmigan. Um, the goshawk gets its name from the uh, the from hunting goose actually mm. yes. Oh, okay. yes interesting so i can see that oh, is it, can, it like an old english you know yes it has a way of taking they can take duck goose ptarmigan uh, spruce grouse squirrel. so so they can they can take yeah. game birds for, so for take, eating that's yeah, awesome yeah this girl this this goshawk can take anything he's yeah. the pinnacle of all of these guys out here yeah. so so what what does a goshawk look like i mean if you had to describe it um coloration and size and so it's a beautiful bird which which varies from a dark gray colors to light gray to white colors the breast of it is like a a real spotted gray light gray to white and the back side top side of the bird is a real dark gray and they have a really unique feature that we love in falconry they have a white brow line on a black black forehead Mm. which gives it a real piercing uh, way of looking at you. When a goshawk flies on your glove and looks at you, he has a really dominant... Intense in- look. Intense look, yeah. yeah. It's really... And they also have... Uh, mature goshawks have red, red eyes, so it's yeah. a beautiful bird. Bird so with eyebrows. The coloration would be why they're hard to find, to see, because that would blend in, you know, with yes. our birch trees. Yes. You know, we don't have yes. a lot of tree species yes. but they they're that gray green and right. with against the sky that's right and the, with the sun being low on the horizon you know the shadows are different here so i would right. imagine you have a hard time finding where their nests are right <laughs> so the best way to find a goshawk out here is uh to listen for them oh gosh yeah because the parents will absolutely make a fuss when you near the nest so when you hear these birds so the parent will do like a sweep of about a thousand yards around a nest so if you approach a nest they're going to make it known so that's kind of how you just basically run into them <laughs> and they're very distinctive yes very distinctive. i'm gonna yes. have to look that sound up yes. yes so a lot of our land here is in refuge where are the places that that you are allowed to go and and identify these birds and not is the refuge off limits or is that a place that you can go to find a bird any place is 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 available to us as falconers we can Capture, wow. yes, anywhere. So you got like the yes. Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Basically, yes, yes, basically. Okay. So um, so how did you meet your uh, your master? Because we were talking about this earlier, and, and uh, you know, falconry is kind of like, uh, well, you're kind of like a Jedi. Yeah, man. And so, uh, you've got to find a master to to yeah. to teach it. Or That's exactly to, right, yes, to, to apprentice under. Yes, apprentice exactly under, right. yes. yeah. So I was having trouble in South Louisiana because we don't have many falconers in Louisiana and there are no falconers within a 200 mile radius of the place I grew up. So I was I got in touch with our Southeastern Conference Director, a really nice lady called Joan Marie. And she found a guy that would, uh, Jeff LeCompte, that would take me on. All and, good Irish names. Yes, man. 
So uh, <laughs> Jeff gave me a call one day, and uh, so we lived so far apart that the commute on my part was kind of really pretty far ride. But I mean, I really wanted to do it, so I committed to it. And two years later, here I am. You know. So what what levels are there in in falconry? So there is apprentice. Then there so apprentice level is the first two years. You're allowed to fly only certain birds. Which would be in South Louisiana would be a red tail hawk or American crestrel. You're not allowed to fly until you prove yourself as an uh, in a, as a general. After two years, become a general falconer, and uh, after f- so f- five years after that day, which would be seven years from the time you started, you become a master falconer. And uh, master falconer is allowed to fly any bird that is um, allowed in falconry, basically. Now you you have to have a falcon in your possession at all time it, it, during that entire period. If it, if you go a year or two without the falcon, do you lose time? Yes, or? it's not counted unless you fly in a bird. Oh, That's okay. right. Okay. Yes. yes, definitely. All right. So so not having a bird right now is costing you. So uh, time. my move to Alaska is going to cost me one year. Yes, a falconry. Oh okay. my gosh. Yes. So so are you are you hopeful? I I do you do you have you staked out a one of these uh, one of these birds yeah. yeah so there is a nest near me the near the place that i live uh, south of longmere don't tell anybody and, uh, okay super right. secret <laughs> so they, they, I, I, I don't think anyone's going to be able to find it so good luck from, from good luck yeah. you know yeah. good luck yeah you're gonna have to follow unless him around yeah. unless you have the right midichlorian count you're not gonna yeah. find it yeah, yeah you man, you yeah. are not i'm positive yeah. you have to have that uh i guess you know you have to have that thing about you you know you, you do you, you, yeah you have yeah. to really understand how to find them because yes. i live out in the country and I've done for almost 20 years, never seen one. Yeah, so the, the, the amazing part about falconry is, uh, so when I do decide to catch this bird in June, I'm going to go out with a thing called a ball shari trap. It, it's a quarter inch hardware cloth trap that it's um, half round on the top and it has monofilament nooses on the top. Mm-hmm. And you put some type of prey inside of that trap and then this young guy because he's uh, he's bold he'll yeah. come down and grab the trap and the monofilament nooses grab him mm-hmm. and you have to be on standby you have this you carefully watching this trap or whatever happens so the amazing part happens then so you go up to it and you grab it with a towel and wrap it really nice and comfort it so you have to imagine the worst thing ever just happened to this bird a human being has possession of it uh. so it is absolutely losing its mind right so you go into a state called Manning and you take this bird home and you put it in a dark room with yourself and you spend the next two days in this dark room. Watching Netflix. Right. <laughs> but you do, actually what you do is uh, you walk figure eights with the bird on your falconry glove. You just start doing figure eights and um, eventually the bird will relax to a point to where he hasn't eaten me yet so he'll, i guess he'll, he's, he'll stop yeah. biting you yeah <laughs> no no they, they, they don't really bite okay so they're uh their talents are what they use to kind of okay. get at you so you know we we had we had uh cockatiels mm. man they bite the crap out oh, of you yeah. 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 i hate those yeah. things yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> not the same bird i i would pay not money to watch a goshawk <laughs> eat a cockatiel right i hate them birds right so, so it's only a three-week period. So when you capture a wild bird, it only takes three weeks before you walk out into the wild, turn that bird loose off of your glove, and it follows you like a hunting dog. Really? Basically. Yeah, from tree to tree. That's crazy. 
That so, that's yeah. that's amazing. So how do you get it to come back to you then? Okay, so like, when you in the three week span, you go through the manning stage, which you allow the bird to get used to you. Then you go through a, a time that you fly on what's called a creance line. You go out and put it on a perch, and then there's a long creance line, maybe 50 yards. You walk out, present food to it, it flies to your glove. So f- birds of prey are really intelligent. They quickly understand it's easier to eat with him than to go out there and sit in a tree all day, right? <laughs> so, so this is actually socialist conditioning. It is. It it's is socialist exactly conditioning. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. See, uh, see the, the, the show is always about politics. Yeah, always, we can, always. You can always gin it, circle back. Yeah, always you know. politics. Yep. So, so once it gets used to it, it gets used to your glove. The glove becomes a very important part of that hunt. So, whoever holds the glove holds the falcon, basically. Oh. So they imprint on the glove. They imprint on the glove. Yes, really. Oh. Yes. Interesting. And so the the secret to this to a wild capture is that this bird already understands how to hunt. It knows its prey. It knows how to kill it. It knows everything to do. So you turn it loose in a while, but then your job becomes a different thing. So you become basically the hunting hound. You're the hound. That's right. You mm. just scare a prey. So it quickly says, hey, look at Chad over there. He just scared up a hare. Oh. And so it starts to associate you with <laughs> okay. good kills. And then that's it, you know? Yeah. Now, the, the, then the, the one thing you always want to be careful, and every falconer understands this, and this is a saying that falconers have. Falcons are like women. Once you lose their trust you've lost the bird so you have to be careful you never steal anything from that bird of prey you make sure it gets its share first and it's full it has everything it needs and then you take the rest of the game home oh okay and you share it with it as it goes time goes by yeah so uh so you gave you gave julia a book yes and i've i've kind of thumbed through the book and there was an amazing photo in that book of a woman i don't know it might have been a photo from the 50s or 60s a woman is standing at her oven, and she's actively cooking a sauce or something, and she's got a falcon on her arm. Uh, and she's just sitting there, like, just hanging out, chilling with the bird while she's cooking dinner. Now, does it have the hood on and everything, or, or no? You don't remember that? No, I don't like, think it had a hood on. So no, it didn't, no, you don't it, have to no have hood. hoods on these no, animals, or no? Because no? no, so, um, that's how you see them on television. Yeah. So, so peregrines and uh, different types of falcon long-wingers, they use hoods for only one purpose. So when they go into the field, if you don't want that peregrine to fly off your glove and go after prey, you have to keep it from seeing it because it's going to oh, do all right. it. Now, I particularly never use the hood. I'm a hawker. And so uh, I just, certain birds will not, are not quite as aggressive and they'll. So, so Julia was telling me in her interview with you that um, uh, we talked about all kinds of birds. Um, uh, raptors and and um, owls. I don't know owls, where they, where yes. they fit into the picture, but she said that that eagles that they, that there are people who have used eagles, but that they're actually kind of dumb. Yeah, and eagles, that they'll yeah. and that they'll they'll go and p- pick up like ch- uh, children and dogs and so um, <laughs> that kind so, of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So the only eagle that 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 we have in America's that we fly in falconry is a golden eagle. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And I've so, seen some huge yeah. golden yeah. eagles. So people, there's this, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a young lady from California, Jamaica Smith, that flies golden eagles, and um, they actually hunt deer with them, white-tailed deer. That's Whoa. crazy. Yes. Yes. Whoa. Yes. So they're able to bring them down, but they can't do anything with them. I mean, they just, right, so, they can kill them. 
Or bring them down. They bring them down, and then the hunter. The hunter gets, goes. Yes, goes and. So, so for some of these, these birds, you're not necessarily expecting it to bring it back to you or anything. You go get it. You then. always go get it. You yes, always yes, go get yes, it. So always, it's yeah. it's captured whatever it is cool on the ground. To see a bird bring yes. back a deer. Well, <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. I didn't think it would bring it back, but I just didn't understand if it killed it and then stood there by it or. So it doesn't take a large bird to take a deer down. Basically, I had a Harris hawk, and she was about 1,300 grand, which is about four and a half pounds. Mm-hmm. She could take a whitetail down. I, oh, that's so, uh, that's well, amazing. The, the way they do it is they do a thing called crabbing. They'll grab a hole to the, to the animal, and then they'll crab their way all the way to the head of the animal. And then, so a Harris hawk has about a two and a half inch uh, rear hullocks. And so they sink that into the eyes of the animal, and now the animal can't oh, okay. see, can't run. All right. And so it can't. I don't get know. Away. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's gruesome, it's but gruesome. pretty. pretty no, yeah. you know, it's yeah. wild America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. So, um, so that was a Harris hawk, and you had a Harris hawk. Yes, sir. I had a wow. Harris hawk. Her name was Zen. She's still flying. When I moved to Alaska, I couldn't bring her here because she would develop what's called aspergillosis, which is the equivalent of the flu. Mm-hmm. The climate is not uh, oh. suitable for her. So I actually hunted her with a dog, a beagle dog called Smackaroo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they are still together in southern Alabama and Aww. doing great. Wow. Yes. Oh, wow. that's nice. Yeah. So that's that's a bird. Okay, then why are you going to release if you get this goshawk? Why are you going to release it after a year, whereas that one you've kept forever? So they. they well, the, uh, the she Harris was, hawk, she was, she was born in captivity. Okay, so yes, that's the yes, difference, yes, basically. Yes. Okay. So any bird born in captivity that's not native to the state okay. that it's in, you can't release it as a falconer. Okay, you have to keep it. You have to keep it. They banded birds, and yeah. it, it's, it's a federal regulation that you are not allowed, you know, introduced in any kind of species into an, uh, So are there people that prefer that? That prefer to, are, to, to prefer yes. the ones born in captivity so they can have a longer relationship with it? Yes, there are people that prefer it. Some people don't want to release a bird because, you know, you have to understand you just went through a whole year of yeah. working with this bird and you became accustomed to the moves and you understand the bird. But in some respects, it's fair because you turn that bird loose as a mature bird and it goes off to breed. And that's kind of what keeps us going as falconers if we don't reproduce in a while well then we don't get the chance the to do circle it circle of life the circle yeah. of life yeah, <laughs> so right. then sounds like a disney uh man yeah, yeah. <laughs> so are okay once you've got your bird and you're nearing the end of that year you're already looking for your other one is that how Basically, that works yes, yeah exactly you've already got works. a yes. yeah, you've already got a nest and yes, or yes. So potentials you, what happens okay what happens now are i assume that these birds in the wild are kind of territorial Yes, they're absolute territory. So yes. what happens if you get a goshawk and you go hunting and you end up in another goshawk's territory? Does that become problematic? So, yes. Well, it can be. You know, generally speaking, because you're with your goshawk, uh, an outside pair won't approach it because there's a human in the, in, in the area. But there are instances that, yes, they will become aggressive and kind of, Get after your goshawk, in which case, if you see something going on, it's very simple. You pull out your glove, and uh, your bird flies back to your glove, and you just remove yourself from that area. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, what's the best way for... Now, this is a... It's a 15-year continuous process to become a master. So, realistically, if you can't find a bird, 
It might be more like 20 years. It can be, yeah. 30 yeah, years yeah. to become a master. How, yeah. how, what's the best way for somebody in Alaska who wants to become a falconer to, to get started? So the best way to get started would be able to, would be to contact, uh, probably, um, there's a falconry association in Alaska. You mm -hmm. would contact someone in that association and, uh, they could get you in contact with a master falconer that has time to pick you up as an apprentice. Time and to pick you up. That's interesting. Yeah, that yeah. gives me the impression that there's a waiting list. There is a waiting list. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. Yes. And not everyone, as a falconer, you know, just like anything, not everyone's intentions of falconry are great. So there's a lot of questions to answer before these people will spend two years of their life with you, you know. So you say two years, but what is it? Is it like once a weekend, five times a day, five times a week? It's two one, years solid. Two, yeah, like yeah. daily. Daily. You have this bird every single day, like a raising a four-year-old No, child. but the, the, the one you're apprenticing with, sort of, how often do they have to see you if they're going to take you under, you know, guide you? I would say a minimum would be three times, four times a week. That's a lot. Yes. That, yeah. Well, you have to hunt it, so... So another thing in falconry that's very important is because this bird was a wild bird, it has to be able to hunt. You have to continue to hunt. So you have to prove that hunt. Oh, God. And as an apprentice, you're growing out there and you're making mistakes because you don't know the falconry yet. And that master falconer, your sponsor is who he's called, your sponsor makes sure that you're doing everything mm -hmm. that that bird needs. So it takes at least four days a week. So it's a it's a it's a commitment for both of the people. It's a commitment for the person for both that people. wants yes. to learn and the person that's teaching. Yes. It's not like they can just zoom do a zoom call. No. No, <laughs> no, no. zoom calls for yes. falconry. So, so you spend a lot of time outdoors. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So if if you're if you really love the outdoors and you like wildlife and you like eating wildlife and you like being with wildlife and it sounds like some terrific people then falconry Yes. Sounds yes. like a, a a passion, a pursuit. Yes, yes. You know, something that's a, a quality of life kind of thing. It is absolutely a quality of life. Yeah. So I've got the uh, I've got the website pulled up for the Alaska Falconers Association. It's actually pretty cool. They've got a bunch of videos just right on their homepage showing these these birds in action, and um, uh, they the website says they've been around for forty years. Uh, they were founded in nineteen eighty one. And um, their 40 year, 40th year was uh, 2081, or 2021, and um, uh, pretty, pretty neat. Now, let's talk about owls for a minute, because owls are kind of cool. We have lots of different owls in Alaska. And um, when I was talking to Julia, because, you know, she, she kind of gave me the greatest hits of your, uh, your interview. <laughs> um, you know, we, we had an owl that we unintentionally caught oh <laughs> julia has chickens oh and great. so yep. to keep the birds of prey from eating the chickens we've put uh uh set net yeah uh netting over their right their uh their, their outdoor pen and um one day we were we, we had just driven into the house and and the chickens are stupid you know <laughs> They'll they'll yep. they'll get mad at each other and the yep. roosters will pick on them and yep. you know they'll fly and flop around and stuff and occasionally they'll fly up into that net and get caught. Some of them will kill themselves and 
you know, we uh, Julia goes, "Oh no, one of my chickens!" And she had she had bantams, which are these little oh. tiny Japanese bantams. Yeah, and then oh, they're nasty. Oh, and, and they fly like crazy. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, yep. they're they're probably the closest thing to a wild bird they are. is right. You can get in the chickens, but uh, they're pretty small. And so she saw this bird hung up in the uh, in the the netting. Well, we had some fat shrews around, and and my guess is that this owl, it was an owl, right, saw a shrew. Because they would come in, they would eat the chicken feed because chickens are messy and, you know, they peck and half their food goes out of the dish. And so the shrews were fat and happy in that area. And this, this <laughs> owl, this little barn owl, a uh, little tiny guy, um, had flown into that netting yeah. and had struggled enough that he had completely wrapped oh, it around no. his neck. Oh, dear. And, oh, dear. Ar- and, and around his feet. And he had his, his wings completely widespread. And he was just hanging there. Mm. And I went out and I looked and I was like, "Oh, holy crap! This is a, this is an owl. Yeah. This isn't a." <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I looked at it and he looked at me, and he knew he was caught. He was like, "Okay, uh, I'm not going to move because I'm going to strangle myself if I." He was pretty smart, right? You know. So I had some heavy uh, heavy leather gloves, in for working with wood and stuff. And I went and got some gloves and I told Julia to get get a towel, and uh, and we went and we just. We just very carefully cut him out of the out of the netting, and uh, I'm glad I wore the gloves because holy smokes, those are like like needle sharp. Right, they're absolutely sharp. The and, little talons, the talons, yeah. yeah. And so he he grabbed onto my finger, and uh, we got him all cut out, and he sat on my finger and fluffed himself up and rearranged his feathers and sat there and just kind of looked at me. And he looked off into the woods and looked at me and went, okay, and flew off. Flew, flew off. You know, and that, that was pretty cool. And then my, my, my other daughter, Lindsay, was driving on the Sterling Highway. And she just about hit a great horned owl yeah. that was standing in the middle of yeah. the road. Wow. And there were cars that had gone around it. And this thing was just sort of staggering around in the road. And... So I wonder if it had been hit. Well, she thought she thought maybe it had been hit or yeah, something had happened and partially. And uh, so she she got she pulled over and got out and she got her jacket. She walked right up to it and wrapped it in her jacket. Oh, and um, uh, she said it made some really interesting noises. <laughs> um, but she took it back to her car and she was driving a Jeep Cherokee. And she got in the Jeep Cherokee, and she put that owl, which was the size yeah, they're, of a they're child. Big, they're right? big, you know, right? I mean, it yeah, was a big owl, bird, yes. big. you know, size of a of a like a one year old, right? Yeah, you know. And she put this this owl in her passenger seat, wrapped in the jacket, <laughs> and then she took she the took her belt. she took the seatbelt <laughs> and seatbelted this bird only in, in Alaska. And she's driving down the road with yeah, a great horned owl. owl. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, she called me and was like, "What do I do?" And I was like, "Well, you can." Call the troopers and or fishing game, and they can come and get it or something. And and they actually asked her to meet her, meet meet them in the uh, sports center parking lot. Mm-hmm. So she drove all the way from Sterling to the sports center. Well, she has a cat, oh. and it's like a Manx cat, and it goes everywhere she goes in the car. Oh she, dear! She used to have the cat sleep in her hoodie, yeah, in the hood when she would right. like walk around. So those cats everywhere with her. His name is Caruso, 
And uh, Caruso got curious. Oh no! Oh man! And <laughs> poked his head around and looked at that that uh, that owl. And Caruso decided real quick he was going to get to the furthest point in that <laughs> yeah. that vehicle he could. Went, the owl saw him and made some noises. <laughs> and yeah, he knew. He understood the pecking order, so right. to speak. But uh, but that was pretty cool, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in the space of about three four years, we yeah. came in contact with yeah. two owls. Yeah, our family did and. And so Julia told me that there are people who have owls, but uh, that there's some problems with that. Can you tell us a little bit about the owl side of the equation? So there are people who fly owls in falconry, but so the, the, the just of it is, is to your ability to present a bird of prey with quarry is falconry. Okay, so an owl is a nocturnal guy mm. so i mean imagine being out in the dark yeah. it sounds fun night vision <laughs> night, yeah, vision. night vision well, goggles oh yeah well he has <laughs> he has you you would have to have night vision to see you yeah, yeah, right? yeah so he has the ability to go out there and do it but do you have the ability to present that guy with yeah. that opportunity is the problem in falconry mm-hmm. and there is a movement to uh do away with owls in falconry because of that you know there are several birds of prey that are just not suited um mm. Owls, in my opinion, would be one of them. Uh, osprey is a bird of prey that just, I mean, how do you find fish for yeah, this bird? Yeah, if you want to go, go fishing? There? Yeah, man, they, you know. Well, <laughs> That'd be cool. I, I, honestly. Having a, can you imagine having to present a glove to an osprey? Man, yeah. So so in South Louisiana, it would be ridiculous. Yeah, but beat, here in Alaska, you to death. <laughs> here in Alaska, I think it would work because yeah, uh, there's they, a lot of fish. Yeah, Kenai River is full of fish. So you sit there in, in, in any river and just kind of swoop down on them. But. So well, you know, up north when we lived in Nome, all the rivers up there are clear. There's mm-hmm. no no yeah. glacial no glacial till yeah. or runoff up there, right. and and you can see clear to the bottom of every right. every river up there. They're just crystal pristine. Yeah. So right. I could see an osprey working up up there. We had know? one. We lived on Daniel's Lake, and we had one that would fish right would sit in a tree behind our house and fish because we had there was a run of uh, silvers that come into Daniel's Lake, and he'd come in and. You know, it was so sad because the eagle would come. I don't like eagles. The eagle would come, and the eagle would be sitting there watching the osprey. The osprey would catch the fish, and the eagle would harass the osprey till right. the osprey dropped the fish, and the eagle would. And he did that day after day after day. It was so annoying. So, so a bald eagle is kind of like a They're, carrion guy. Oh yeah, they are. He doesn't hunt anything. No, they they, yeah. they steal from yeah, everybody. He just steals everything. Yeah. No, they, they they'd yeah. steal from the otters. You know, the yeah. otters would catch fish. So they'd maybe, come down. Maybe, and the, they're maybe horrible. the maybe the Democrats should change their <laughs> change their mascot, mascot from to the, the otter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> They're beautiful yeah. birds, don't get me wrong, but it would be so annoying because if you've ever seen an osprey hunt, this is, it, it is tremendous. It is beautiful. Yes. I mean, they go, they go a, a foot or two into the water because these salmon are not near the surface. They're one to two right. feet down. And then they come out and they have to heft that fish, plus drop all the water they've got on them and get into the air right. and fly somewhere with it. Right. It's just amazing. It's it so takes annoying. a tremendous amount of power for that osprey to to grab that fish. You I mean, what's a it. wingspan on an osprey? Those they're huge birds. I'd say roughly about three and a half foot. Yeah, and then they, it, you know, it's amazing as they get near the water, they make themselves into this little aerodynamic right. thing that just goes. It's like this this. It's like a missile, missile that yeah. goes right into the water. Yes. yes. And then it just comes right up. 
So for the first few seconds, he's he's got a hold to this fish, and the fish is trying to get away, yeah. right? So he he spends a little time down there, you know, before he comes back up it's, and it's, tries to fly. Yeah. Similar to a mosquito in Louisiana, he surfaces, and then he has to flap and get that fish out of the water. So yeah. Osprey are very powerful when yeah. it comes to that. Yeah. They're, they're, we're so blessed are, are to have Are you saying that here? the mosquitoes in Louisiana can can carry carry <laughs> off People? their prey? Man, there, <laughs> there are so many mosquitoes in Louisiana, they will carry you off absolutely. Oh, yeah. he hasn't. you haven't been here so, for the so summer have, yet. Have though. you been here for the summer? I have been here for the summer. Oh, okay. Yes, did you, did yes. you find any of our, our local birds of prey? The, yeah, the I found mosquitoes? some local birds of prey, mosquitoes. mosquitoes yeah. And so you guys' mosquitoes are quite large, mm-hmm. but they are slow. Oh and, really? And, and, the, and the numbers oh. of them are quite low, comparatively speaking. Well, they're all kind of from the fa- same family tree, yeah. so you know you expect yeah. them to be a little <laughs> bit slower than. So we have several species of mosquito in South Louisiana. Yeah, we have the killing kind, we have the real killing kind, and we have murderers. Man, I mean, just like <laughs> no, you have you, no chance. <laughs> you are the first person that I've honestly ever talked to. When I say to it, everyone I know of that when you talk about Alaska, but the bugs. And I go, you've never lived anywhere where there's bugs. Like, you've lived where I there's bugs. Where See, bugs. he knows yes. what bugs are See, like. I, I have no desire to go anywhere <laughs> where there's things called chiggers or, or yes. you know, um, the, uh, the, all of the parasitic bugs that are down there. Too. Not, not only that, there's like five kind of wasps. Yes, we yeah. have plenty of wasps. <laughs> that, and so, they all and bite. Then, and then snakes. Snakes. And, you know. oh. so, so interesting enough, um, in the little area of South Louisiana, I grew up in the Chafalaya Basin on a houseboat. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have chiggers or ticks oh. or fleas or any of these Just kind gators. of things. Oh. We, had, we had gators and snakes <laughs> and mosquitoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Um, so let's talk a little bit about your accent. So you, you've got a you've you've got a very distinctive accent, and um, no, that's that's let's, that's let's, what's from where they're let's, from. Let's, that's, let's that's, talk a little. We, we were yep. talking before the show yep. a little yep. bit about the heritage and yep. and sort of this misconception that everything's French down there. And no, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the great state of Louisiana. Man, yeah. So uh, the misconception is that the entire state of Louisiana is French, and that would Mm-mm. that's not accurate so there is uh the cajun culture french culture is centrally located it's in the south central part of louisiana around a town called saint martinville louisiana maybe Mm -hmm. a 50 mile radius around that town and uh so when you think of french culture in louisiana most people gravitate towards new orleans louisiana that is not accurate that would be creole people Mm -hmm. and creole would be african-american native american french descent okay Basically, um, in French, that word would be demi-lot, but it was like a ladder. Mm-hmm. And so that is not our culture. French Cajun culture is South Central Louisiana. And um, my accent is a direct derivative of speaking French, broken French all my life, you know. So okay, you grew up. Yeah. Now, my sister-in-law, she sounds like she's from New York. She mm-hmm. does. She sounds right. when she does not well, sound see, like see, you. See, she would, sounds would, like where she's. I would say you kind of sound like you're from from the East Coast oh, as well. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not anywhere near where she's from, but you know, she's born, bred Louisiana, and okay. she's from the part of Louisiana she's from. It's this very New Yorky type, whereas you're more. I've I've heard your accents. My husband. Cajun. Oh, see, Cajun. But you know they say words so funny. I remember looking at words, and my my husband says that's Pankerville. I went, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? Say that again. Pankerville. Wait, where did you? You left out a whole bunch of stuff there. You know, (laughs) you know. You know, interesting enough, when I started school, uh, 
Yeah. French was basically prohibited in school. Oh. We were learning Spanish. Spanish. And we were a bunch of French kids that could speak French, you know. Yeah. And nowadays, they's trying to teach French in school. Oh, wow. that's what so a ripoff, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we got in trouble for it. But our, my parents and grandparents, uh, they only spoke French. So yeah. it was like uh, you would go to school and you would kind of... Well, you know, Louisiana is a, kind of a strange cat to skin. It's a, it's a, their law is different. Oh, down yeah, there. The, very the strange law. law. Yeah, the Napoleonic yeah. Code and yeah. very strange and, law. And uh, just very, very. It's culturally, I mean, probably one of the most diverse sort of uh, different places in the United States. Yes, it is. Almost. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only other place that I would say would be. I guess Texas, Texas, because they still hold on to their yep. republic. The roots. republic of Texas, yeah. right? And right. and then uh, and then the folks in far northern Maine. I met some girls in high uh, school no. when I went back east to Lake Winnipesaukee for a, a youth leadership camp, and these girls I could not understand anything they said. They <laughs> they they had a f- they and I think it was French. They were so close to what is that uh, Nova Scotia? Yeah, right. yeah, and that's, um, yeah. Where that's, they were like in the, in the borderlands right. yeah. of uh, Maine, and yeah. and and their accent was so thick. It was yeah. it was like trying to talk to somebody from I don't know. I guess I went to Scotland once. I went to Edinburgh, oh. and they speak something there called Glaswegian. Oh yes. yeah, or Glasgow actually. Yeah. I was in Glasgow, and they call it Glaswegian. And holy smokes, yeah. it was like. So I learned to say one phrase in Glaswegian. Okay. There's an area in over there. <laughs> there's uh, something over there. There's an, it's an airplane over there. Yeah. Airplane over there. Yeah, there's an airplane over there. You know, and yeah. I, I, so languages and culture uh, have always fascinated me, the history of places. Right. Uh, whenever I move somewhere, that's the first thing I do is I learn about the history. Well, you, should go, to, to, you should go to Louisiana because it has some wonderful... Well, I've been, I've been to Louisiana once, but it's probably kind of like saying you've been to Alaska once no. when you go to Anchorage. Depends on where you went. Right. That you is know. exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I, went yeah. To, I went to New Orleans. I yeah. was down no, in, the you con- gotta, yeah. I was in the convention center yeah. area. We went to a Mardi Gras World and saw that. And, yeah. And we yeah. went down to, yeah. uh, down to uh, oh, uh, what's, what's Bourbon Street. And yeah. we're down yeah. there and caught some blues shows and a couple of clubs and Looked at the people but, passed but out in the street. It's a beautiful place to go and see the arts, uh, but yeah. most people from Louisiana stay away from New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's not, and it's not uh, when you get out into the small communities and that, it's just so different. Very different. New yes. Orleans is a very tourist, and I was only there a couple of years, and even I noticed that. The things it's basically that would, the equivalent of Anchorage. It's the equivalent of Anchorage or New York City or yes. any large yes. city yes. in yes. which you're, you're accommodating tourists. So we were comparing yeah. notes before the show, and... Yeah. Um, the only other uh, Cajun folks that I've met were the band members for the group Beausoleil. Beausoleil. Uh, Beausoleil. Uh-huh. And uh, Chad said he actually knows, the f- yes, met absolutely. the folks from yeah. Beausoleil, and yeah. we're talking. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about music, about music culture in, in Louisiana. Man, so music is extremely important in South Louisiana, especially in Cajun culture. Everything. So music and cooking, which is what mm-hmm. Cajun is known for, right? So the 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 gist of it all is music is part of a gathering in Cajun culture. Most women in a gathering do not do the cooking. No, you're right. Men I remember do. going yeah. to a crawfish boil and the men are standing out there looking at the crawfish boil and they're discussing like my daddy. 
This is right. my my daddy cooked it. Well, my daddy put sausage in. Well, my daddy didn't put the corn in till later. So and they're serious, it, yeah. absolutely very serious. Utter, cooking is like you know, utterly yeah. serious. Yes. Yes. Y- y- it's, it, Music and yeah. cooking is the most serious thing to Cajun yep. men. Well, yeah, it yeah. is. Did, yep. uh, Loretta actually has a, sort of a. Uh, a, a well-kept secret in her past. What is that, Loretta? Oh, she, what is it? She, uh, with, <laughs> dealing with cooking. So I'm not and, telling and, this and, secret. You're going to tell it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> as, as I've heard it, as, as her husband told me, oh. that, uh, uh, I think he met you in New Orleans when you were there taking a workshop or well, something. Well, it was or? actually it was actually in uh, uh, Gonzales, a small. I, I uh, gosh, what's his name? I went down to work in a ho- uh, restaurant. See, I'm getting old. It's past <laughs> my past life. I don't remember it. But he, ra- he ran a couple of restaurants down there. And, and Loretta? Uh, John, uh, John Fulce. John yeah. Fulce. John Fulce. So, yeah. so he now does bulk food, though. I, don't, yeah. I think he's closed his bulk restaurants. Bulk food. So, yeah. Dude, is that, yeah. is that sort of like the, the chef's graveyard? You're a chef, and then probably, and then yeah. no, he just he just he just go into processed bulk food. No, yes. he just he just branched out. I think I think he yeah. took his recipes and made it so he could sell it to other restaurants yeah. and John is stuff actually like that. a great chef. He yeah, is he is. really. Yeah. Have you have you met John? Yes. So yeah. John, is, he's a real person. See, there, 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 we yeah. Yeah. there we go. There we go. So John, we're making connections. Today. Yeah. <laughs> what I love about him the most is he'd done a lot of traveling in the entire state of Louisiana, and he went out and meet people in their home. Yeah. And wrote i have a, a his his book book he's wrote, gotten he a, wrote a, a a book of recipes that yeah. were basically he didn't regionalized he didn't, yeah, regionalized. he didn't Regional. uh, he didn't change anything he no. put it in there yeah. and it was all about uh wild harvest in louisiana yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. everything you know, he's he's not to, like who's the other one that's the the louise the the guy that that's really, really Emeril famous. Lagasse. Emeril Lagasse. Yeah. I, no. He's, he's so a Emeril's television cook. He's from New cook. Orleans, he's and he's a, basically he's, a... Sh- he's, he's a television a, cook. Yeah, he's a television he, cook. He yeah. just... He, yeah. yeah, and, and John wasn't. Yeah. I like to watch, you know, television cook. Yeah. The first yeah. guy in Louisiana that really made it in that um, limelight was a guy named... Uh, Oh, uh, Prudhomme. Paul Prudhomme. Proud Paul Prudhomme. Prudhomme was a real guy. Yeah. He had really good cooking yeah. skills. And, you know, Emerald's a really good cook. He's just... Uh, he's become Hollywoodized. Yeah, he's a yeah, He's exactly, an entertainer yeah. now. Yeah. John's you'd go not. To, you'd go to Vegas to watch a show with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Bam! Put it in there. Bam! Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what made him famous. Bam! Bam! Bam. Yeah, that's it, right? Yeah. Right. Well, John Julia Foles Childs had the, had the liquor... You know, she I was guess. always and butter. Yeah. She yeah. was always yeah. putting massive yeah. amounts of butter, butter and liquor and alcohol. Things. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking the alcohol while she was doing all of it. Yeah, everything was good after that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You have to prepare the palate. Yeah. But yeah. but I have to I have to admit that's the one thing I miss yeah. about Louisiana was like the things that people would do the crawfish boils. Um, we went back a few years ago to visit my brother and sister in law and he'd gone out that morning and gotten a a, a thing of oysters from just somebody he knew down the down the, the road, <laughs> and uh, he came came back with this big cooler of oysters, and we sat outside, 
you know, out literally on lawn chairs with right. his cooler it's and like opened oysters. 90 degrees, yeah, 80% and, and ate them. And there was like, there was no ceremony about it. There were no napkins. There was nothing. It was just a cooler, a knife, yep. a bucket of red sauce, you know, and best way to crackers. Eat yeah, best yeah way crackers. To, yeah, yeah. You know, the only oysters I ever ate just reminded me of salty boogers. So, oh, just, man. no. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know what no. a salty yeah. burger tastes like, but, you know. But, I, but I had some at I was Michael's. A kid once. I had some at Michael's restaurant just a couple of weeks okay, back, and, and I have they, to say they were delicious. Were they the little yeah. ones? Yeah. So I ate them out of oysters. <laughs> <laughs> I would, really? Yeah. yeah wow. My neighbor and I ate a half a second a while, so we had to uh, stop. You know, you know, the Rotary Club here in Soldatna, they have an annual oyster feed for their members where, oh, they, where they fly... They fly oysters from, oh. I think, somewhere down in, in Seattle, uh, Puget Sound somewhere. They grow uh-huh. really big oysters. Right. And uh, they have a big oyster feed and, and do oyster shooters with, I don't know what they put in it, tequila or something. Oh, yeah. that's nasty. And um, But, uh, but yeah, it's a big deal. They've been, I can't remember how many years. Oh, They've been doing it as that. long as I knew about them. Mm. And uh, Jerry Neer is the guy that, uh, oh. local local character that, that arranges the oyster feed. It's always at his house, and it's a big, good time, you know. So, But, um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that's missing in Soldatna, in Alaska, is that it, we don't have as much of that sort of sit-on-your-porch and play the music and cook the stuff, you know, um, neighborhood style of culture. Right. No, no, we don't. None, none whatsoever. Even Texans do it better. And, and uh, you so, know, they just do like barbecue type. Uh, oh, they actually do. Yeah. But the, they do the big, they do barbecue. And, and maybe it's because we just Not have just, more to land. We have bigger, bigger lots and uh, we're, we're more apart from each other and seasonally it's cold and, you know, kind of nasty outside, and so you don't really want to sit on the porch. And well, maybe Jason, that's something you should start again. I should. You should start have, again have, some kind have of a, a big porch. We we have not a, a big porch, but we, start some kind of a community. If you food want to, type if, thing. If you want to weigh in, jump up to the mic. <laughs> so, so I can tell you, since I've been here, yeah, I've missed that gathering yeah. around yeah. food. Yeah. And so my neighbors, good, very good couple, they wanted to eat gumbo. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so. Uh, they kind of elected me to cook gumbo one night for them, and they said they would call over a few friends. That few friends ended up to be seventy people. Holy smokes! So did about you cook a month enough? ago, I cooked seven. I cooked gumbo in a the equivalent three hundred uh, yeah, gallon three hundred gallon pot for seventy people in. Out of seventy people, fuel fuel tank. (laughs) Everyone loved it, and you know that is one thing that I'm that uh, I think that, and I've spoke to several people about this. I think the one thing I would pick out of our culture is that. Yes. Is the the gathering. It's almost yeah. like uh, people, when people gather over food, there is no political views. Yeah. There is nothing involved yeah. other than, man, that looks good. What if we add this? Well, let's add it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And I would love to be able to do that here. It, well, it, you, you know, yeah. I was I was talking to a friend of mine from the Solomon Islands, and he's a, he, that's his, his profession is he's a cook. Yeah. And he cooks all over the world. And, and um, primarily he goes and cooks for folks on the slope or out on the, you know, um, offshore, you know, platforms and stuff. And uh, his name is Polly, and he is a tremendous piano player, by the way. He can, he can play a full, full like, uh, any genre you want, full orchestra on just one keyboard. But uh, I asked him, because he, uh, he just, uh, 
he just stepped down from his position and he's looking for a, another another gig. And I said, you know, in the meantime, uh, how'd you like to? And he's got his food manager's card and all that stuff. But um, we want to start something called Friday uh, Fun Food Fridays. Ooh. And I've already talked with our, our owners about uh, putting a pop-up tent out in front of our shop and some, some parking cones to kind of make that front area in front of the shop uh, a place where we can put the barbecue out. That sounds like a great and, uh, idea. And, we've, uh, and, and what we're going to do, so if you're, if you're within the hearing of this, uh, this, po- this podcast, is uh, we are going to start rolling out menus. And we'll do that probably on Facebook. And you'll prepay. Mm-hmm. for your meal and then on friday you can tell us what time you want to pick it up and we'll have basically probably from between 10 and 2 mm-hmm. that you can come by and pick up a, a dinner so the first one that we're talking about doing is my favorite recipe which is a uh a hawaiian it's a it's a it's a fusion of hawaiian teriyaki chicken and cajun mm. So it is a, it is a, it is a spicy Hawaiian. Uh, uh, it, you take one of those full chicken breasts you get at uh, like Three Bears or Costco. You know the boneless ones that are like three pounds each mm-hmm. or whatever, and uh, and you marinate that for a day. Back in the fridge, of course. You know we do it all proper. And yeah, <laughs> uh, and and uh, and we have our own proprietary preparation for that. And after that's marinated, then the, the, the secret of this is you put it on the grill and you, we take uh, pineapple circles, canned pineapple circles, and you put that a circle on top of every single chicken breast. And then you pour the marinade into the, the hole on the circle. Mm-hmm. And you let it slow cook. And all of the acids from that pineapple, and there's also some pineapple in the marinade, have softened that chicken right and and the uh the pineapple circles get grilled so they're blackened man, and, sounds delicious. oh man my yeah. mouth mm-hmm. is exploding yeah. right yeah. now i just can't wait to roll that yeah. grill out and do this but this is going to be our first one yeah. uh you'll get a, a bag of sweet maui onion chips and you get a king's hawaiian bread roll man yeah <laughs> and uh that'll all be in one of those uh to go yeah. you know clamshell to go uh yeah. containers yeah, we haven't set the price point on it yet. Man, the saliva is running. But we're just gonna we're gonna do this through the summer yeah. and um, on Fridays. And uh, of course you can always go to the Wednesday market and there's lots of food offerings there, but we just wanna mix it up and yeah. do some neat things here. And well, uh, we'd love to maybe we could get you to do gumbo for us one man, of these days. Yeah, anything. Yeah. But that reminds me, I just remembered that all the festivals that they did in Louisiana, and they started about in the early spring, and there'd be like the Crawfish Festival, and there'd be the Crackling Festival, there'd be the Strawberry Festival, there'd be the Gumbo Festival, and they were all over, and you would drive, you know, sometimes you'd drive, you know, to, to, to wherever it was, and they would be, there would be, it was always music. And there was always be like hundreds of booths selling all different kinds of crawfish, you know, Bro Bridge Crawfish Festival. Yep. But always great music, and then there'd be crafts and everything. But it was always this wonderful coming together of people from all over, you know, always there to have fun and listen to really good music and try out lots of different things. Well, and you, you know, know, and you know I, it, we're it missing nice that if here we could a bit. Do that, you know, the coming together of people. Yeah. Yes. And 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 leave the politics out of it. Yep. 
And just, that is the biggest thing that people remember about Louisiana. Yeah. And because most people show up in Louisiana because of those festivals. Yes. Yeah. And we have people from every corner of this globe that come there. Yeah. And the thing that they remember is that the culture. When you see a couple hundred Cajun people standing there and cooking and kind of coagulating together, you really get to see something because it's yeah. almost spiritual. It's like we, we yeah. really believe in. Uh, we have a saying in Louisiana, if a stranger knocks on your door, feed him. <laughs> and that is the truth. I, I like can, that saying. Man, uh, look, that's a good one. Look, good I can one. drop you guys off anywhere in South Louisiana. And, and this is the truth. You can walk up to any house and knock on a door and tell those people inside that house that you are hungry and they will feed you. Yeah. They will, you would think that those people are your family. It's, yeah. So that's a, that's a government-sponsored project, right? <laughs> no, absolutely no. not, man. <laughs> absolutely and that's, not. That's the, that's the genius behind it is no, not government-sponsored. No, it's, it's, it's something it's called, uh, called being a good neighbor. Being a, being good, a good neighbor. That's exactly right. That's yeah. right. And you know, I've, I've that met... Hospitality, that hospitality, that just that camaraderie of mankind... Yeah. That I've met say. great people in Alaska, and I think we have a lot in common. Yes. Louisiana, South Louisiana, and Alaska. Oh, well, actually cooking, man. When I moved up here, people tell me, I don't know what I'm going to cook tonight. And I think to myself, with all of this seafood here, I can think of a bazillion <laughs> things to cook, right? <laughs> but uh, the people are very uh, outdoorsy, strong nature. The only thing that I'm missing here is that getting together of people yeah. to, to be able to share stories with, like we're doing today. So let me ask you this. Have you ever met the Robinsons? Robert Robertsons. I have not. The Robertsons, the Duck Dynasty guys. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, the Duck yeah. Dynasty. Phil Robertson. In yeah. Sense. Yes, absolutely, man. Yeah. 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 So, so that's so. I've got a bucket list of people I would love to come to the <laughs> shop here. Yeah. Right. Donald Trump is one of those. Yeah. But any of that clan, I don't right. care if it's Uncle Cy, right. or you know Phil, invite or, him or any of those guys. Invite yeah. him. I would love yeah. to have those. I love watching, and you know that's something that show captured. Yes. Was that community, that family, yes. that yeah. cooking, that they culture? They are true to who you see on television. They yeah. are really who you see. Well, you know, there's there's a couple guys that come in and come in the shop on a pretty regular basis that are associated with Samaritan's Purse and mm. and um, Franklin Graham. So um, apparently, Franklin. So Franklin's got a a lodge over in um, Port Allsworth, which is, I believe, on Lake Clark. Across the inlet, and uh, he takes he takes uh, veterans and their uh, uh, families, uh, couples, veteran couples that are suffering, you know, from just the fallout of being deployed too many times, and you know the things that being exposed to warfare can do, you know, and the stresses of marriage and all those things, and they're having a difficult time keeping that all in balance. And uh, and it's a ministry that they do. They take these couples out there and just show them a good time in Alaska. And treat them right, and love on them, and pray for them, and um, and then they have reunions. So they bring all these people together down south, you know, on a semi-regular basis. And um, apparently, they had they had the the Duck Dynasty crew out there on oh. one of these one of oh, these trips. And you so, you know, it's interesting who comes through Soldatna. We never know. You know, they're usually on the low key. You know. Probably like falconers, you know. Yeah, man. <laughs> just, uh, just quietly, you know, doing their thing. But, um, but I'd, I'd love to. The, the other folks I'd love to have back that um, uh, Laura McGinnis down at the the the, uh, the Nilchik Fair was had made a connection with one of the band members for Beausoleil, hmm. and uh, I'd love to have Beausoleil come yeah, back man. up here, and um, 
uh, those guys were plan something were awesome yeah. plan you know, something it's just money it's just yeah, money. yeah. just you money know. so we'll get back to money since we're right at uh 58 minutes on our hour of power if you'd like to sponsor this show check us out on patreon or come on into the shop and uh let us know how you'd like to contribute all the money that we receive uh from the show goes to support things like equipment and bringing people in for shows we want to have comedians we want to have we want to bring culture um uh, this uh this this interview was very timely actually chad because we're headed into the 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 busy season now and um uh people get busy and they forget what the winter was like but winter is not too far away folks if you remember how short last (laughs) summer was right yeah it seems like the summers are getting shorter the older i get and um the winters uh can be a lot more, uh, I guess, awesome, cheerful, exciting when we have stuff to do. Right. And so uh, any contributions you make uh, to the show will then be turned around and put to good use to increase cultural opportunities for our community, build conservative community, and, um, and, and just have a good time together, whether that's cooking or listening to music or you know debating uh, some of the more depressing things in life. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> But uh, we're not going to go there this show. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. Um, Loretta, did you have any, uh, any final comments or notes that you wanted to, to touch on? No, just it was great having you here. And uh, I really think we should head towards what Louisiana has sometimes, you know, that... You know, f- feeling of community that is missing a bit here. So, good things. Good being here, and I think you have the right idea. Yeah. So, thank you. so can we can we count on uh, at some point when you when you do land your goshawk, <laughs> or he lands you? Yeah, yeah man. Uh, can we count on you coming by and kind of sharing your sharing your bird with, with the world? Absolutely. Oh, right. We'd love Lovely. to have you back on the show. We'd also love to. Have you talked to some kids? You know, we've had uh, uh, Bill Laughing Bear came in. He's a, a musher, and he came in and did a thing for the community with kids. Kids were able to learn all about mushing and meet his his lead dog. And that would be awesome. He got to share his passion and his story, his salvation uh, message, you know, because he, he wasn't always a straight shooter, and he got straightened out. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a big advocate for uh, substance abuse recovery and abstinence and... Um, sobriety in the community and uh we want to connect those stories to healthy living and uh connect people with each other so we can be neighborly and have more opportunities to eat gumbo and yeah i'm I'm all in (laughs) all right well have a good uh week everybody join us back here next week for the conservative hour power and enlightenment salon